0: Well, as we uh, continue through the letter of First Peter this morning, uh, we're now in First Peter chapter two, verses thirteen to seventeen. Uh, so, this is the very first uh, subsection that we're in. You could say under this broader section where Peter is addressing how we, as a church, speak of Jesus Christ, how we evangelize for Him, and so the very first subsection here that we're looking at this morning refers in particular to uh, how we as Christians and our submission to earthly authorities and our submission to government actually uh, reflect glory to God. And and we honor Jesus Christ in how we submit to the authorities. And so that's what we're going to read about in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. And then just to see that this isn't some minor theme in Scripture, we'll read words that are uh, to essentially the same effect in Romans 13, verses 1-7. one to seven, uh, Pat will read the first text for us, and Lisa will read for us from Romans. Um, after that, I want us to see that this idea of doing good under the earthly authorities is not even just a, a New Testament concept. It's also in the Old Testament. And so uh, Ryan will come and read for us from Jeremiah 29 uh, verses one to seven. And then finally, uh, Brian will come and read for us from Luke 6. Uh, 27 to 35, which speaks of Christ's own uh, good authority. Um, And so at this time, uh, let's listen to God's word together. So Pat, if you want to come on up and begin our reading.
1: Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor.
2: Romans thirteen one through 7 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honor to honor to whom honor is owed
1: jeremiah chapter 29 verses 1 through 7 these are the words of the letter that jeremiah the prophet sent from jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests the prophets and all the people whom nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from jerusalem to babylon This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasha, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem, You will find your welfare.
0: Well, we can hear in all those verses these exhortations to do good, and not just to do good to the household of faith, as it were, to other believers, but to do good to the city we're in, to be obedient to the government, to do good, and to love even our enemies and those who persecute us. And one big reason why we are to do good in all these ways to all these people is precisely for the witness that we bear. As we looked at last week, 1 Peter really has two major divisions. In the first couple chapters that we were in, Peter was talking mostly about the greatness of the salvation that God has provided. But then in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter makes this shift to talk more about practical application of that salvation and in particular how we are to win the lost for Christ. And so in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So among the Gentiles just means among unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus Christ. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, our good works, the way that we live in the presence of unbelievers, is in itself supposed to be a testimony to them of the kind of God we serve and how they need salvation. Now, Peter wants to press this into the corners of our lives, so to speak. He doesn't want to leave us just with this uh, general exhortation to uh, do what is honorable in our conduct among the Gentiles, but he wants to tell us particular ways that we are to behave in honorable ways. And so, you'll notice in verse 13, the very first verse that we'll be looking at this morning, be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. So, his first place where he is concerned with honorable conduct is with Christians in regard to the government authorities. He recognizes that in how Christians relate to government, we can either destroy our witness and make a falsehood of the gospel that we proclaim, make it so that no one thinks that following Jesus is a good thing, or in how we submit to the government, we can magnify Jesus Christ. We can make him look good and glorious. And so this is the first area where he wants to press it in, and that's where we'll be looking at primarily this morning. But then if you're curious about you know, what messages are coming up and where else is Peter going to press this in, Notice in verse 18, he says servants be subject to your masters. So he can he's concerned that servants in the way they relate to their masters are attesting to the goodness of Jesus. Wives be subject to your own husbands. He's concerned about how wives relating to their husbands can reflect on Jesus. Husbands and wives in verse 7 of chapter 3 is going to reflect how husbands relating to their wives can give glory to Jesus. And then you know this is all of one piece because in 3 verse 8, he says finally... As if he's finishing his list, right? Finally, all of you, so now the instructions apply to everyone. He's not talking about different subsets. He's talking about general instructions. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So we're talking about how all of us together can give glory to Jesus in our conduct. But again, the important thing to notice is that in all these sections, Peter's primary concern is our witness to the Gentiles. Peter's presumption is that when we are living as Christians, we are going to be witnessing to the Gentiles by our actions. And of course, part of that is Peter is assuming that others will know we are Christians. And so that must mean that we're also using our words wherever we go, right? Because what good does it do if we simply live the way we should live, but we never actually speak of Jesus Christ? I heard a good metaphor this last week. It would be like if someone was cured of cancer, and to let everybody know about the cure, they just go back to the cancer ward in the hospital, and they start doing somersaults down the hallway just to show that they were cured, but they never actually tell anyone how to get cured. What good is it if they just go and show how they've been cured, but they don't actually tell anyone how to be cured? In the same way, Peter's very concerned here about our actions and how our actions display the goodness of Jesus Christ, and yet... We must use our words also. If others are to know we are Christians in the first place, or if others are to know what it is that we believe that actually gets carried out in our behavior. And so Peter has all these different stopping points for us that we would press in into our lives the lordship of Jesus Christ so that in every way in which we live, we are being a witness to the lost. We are being a witness to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And that's the primary concern that Peter has here. Now, the the common thread that all of these different sections have is that in these sections, Christians are likely to encounter some sort of suffering or some sort of persecution. So certainly to the people that Peter was writing to, they've experienced suffering from the government. They've been persecuted by the government. Servants very often experience suffering as a result of their master's treatment. In chapter 3, wives, especially with unbelieving husbands, often experience suffering and maltreatment at uh, at the hands of their husbands. And so in all these ways, Peter is concerned with how Christians relate to suffering especially. Now, one thing that's really fascinating about how Peter approaches this is that his concern about Christian suffering is probably not the same concern that we have. So when I think about the, the kind of danger that Christians face as a result of suffering, especially when it comes to evangelism, is I think that we as Christians, if we encounter suffering, might then run away from the Gentiles, so to speak, run away from unbelievers, run away from those things that cause us suffering. Well, again, Peter here seems to take for granted that Christians will not run away from suffering, that Christians are in these relationships, they're in this place, and they just are going to suffer. They can't escape it. And so his concern with the suffering that Christians experience isn't so much that they're going to run away. Christians are going to experience suffering. Peter would probably say, even if you run away, where are you going to go to? You're going to experience suffering there. So there's, there's no way for Christians to get away from suffering, right? Right? Just like an ant can't get away from being small, so a Christian cannot get away from suffering. But Peter's concern in the suffering that Christians experience, and the way it concerns our witness especially, is that suffering is very prone to make us lash out, right? It's very prone to make us angry, to make us rebel, to make us get retribution, and these sort of things. And Peter is warning in all of these sections with regard to government, with regard to servants and masters and wives and husbands and all these things, he's arguing against Christians taking justice into their own hands, getting angry, fighting back. Because if we were to do that, again, our conduct would be dishonorable, we would be shameful people, and those who do not know Jesus would then still not come to know Jesus. And so Peter here is writing to us about suffering, Not to embolden us to endure suffering, because again, he's assuming we're doing that. But to say, when you experience suffering, make sure you don't lash out. Make sure you don't hit back just as you have been hit. It's almost as if Peter is saying that he would rather take a Christian who's enduring suffering because he's living in the presence of these Gentiles... And maybe every once in a while he's failing by lashing out or doing something wrong. He would rather that happen than he would rather it happen to have some Christian who hypothetically moves off into the wilderness, into the desert, away from any Gentiles or unbelievers and who therefore don't experience the sort of persecution or suffering that Christians are likely to experience. So Peter wants us to be close enough, to be near enough to unbelievers, and to be clear enough in our faith that when we are with unbelievers, we will experience suffering. And when we experience that suffering, Peter doesn't want us to lash out or to fight back when we are struck down. Now, as a way of looking at verses 13 to 17 in particular, where Peter is talking about, be subject to the Lord's sake for, to every human institution, I want to enter into this topic by first considering how surprising it is on one level that this is the approach that Peter takes. So most of us, especially if you've grown up in the church, it's probably kind of like common sense to you, right? Like, yeah, Christians are supposed to obey the law. We all know that. What's surprising about that? And yet, if you were someone brand new to Jesus Christ, you've just come to faith You've heard things like the fact that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth, right? He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. If you've even just been reading Peter's letter, and he's mentioned a number of times that you as a believer are a sojourner in an exile. That is, you don't really belong to this particular country, to this particular government or kingdom or empire. If you're following that train of thought, I think the more natural, logical way to think would be, well, we as Christians, we don't need to obey the law, right? Because Jesus is king, right? The emperor isn't king. We believe Jesus is king, so I don't need to obey the law. And besides, I'm an exile anyway. I don't really belong here on earth, right? My citizenship is in heaven. And so, in one way, it seems very odd and confusing that Peter would begin here talking about our witness saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It seems to defy or deny what he's just said about the fact that we're exiles and about the fact that Jesus indeed reigns over all and is the son of God himself. So we have this big question then, why is it that Peter wants us to be subject to the authorities. Why not just say, be subject to God himself? Why be concerned about subjection to the authorities, especially given how wicked we know authorities can be, and especially how wicked they were in Peter's day? Again, this seems to almost put at risk the Christian confession, right? That Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, if we are subjecting ourselves to these earthly authorities. Why does Peter tell us to be subject to human institutions. Well, the answer given here in 1 Peter is is kind of vague. It's kind of general, so we're going to have to do a little excavation to make it clear. But before I get into that excavation, I do want to make one point about a wrong idea or a wrong reason why we should be subject to the authorities. And I want to point this out in particular because even as I was studying this text this week, I was often prone to go down this path, and I found that as I went down this path, it led me to a dangerous place very quickly. The wrong path that we can go down is we could say that Christians should be subject to the governing authorities because we are concerned about what unbelievers think about us, right? We're concerned to make a good impression on unbelievers, and because we want to make a good impression on unbelievers, therefore, we should be subject to the authorities. Now, it would be easy to think that this is Peter's reasoning, right? Because again, he's emphasized this to us. Again, 1 Peter 2, verse 12 keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or look at verse 15 for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So there would be one way of approaching this, of saying the way that we as Christians interact with the government, the way that we're subject to government, or in our modern democratic context, you could say the way we just interact with the government, the way we interact with government policies, that the way in which we are to do that is entirely defined by what the unbelieving world thinks. And if we're just trying to have a good reputation among unbelievers, then Our interaction with the authorities is just going to be based on what the unbelieving world thinks is appropriate or inappropriate, right or wrong. And yet, this would be a wrong way to go, would it not be? Because we could very easily start approving of things that are absolutely wrong in God's eyes. We could very easily abandon the gospel because we are so concerned about the world's stance on things. Now, these verses do make clear that we should care what unbelievers think, right? We can't just be uh, totally mindless or totally senseless of what the world thinks about our political engagement, about our submission to the authorities. So we do have to consider what the world thinks about our political engagement. But that cannot be the primary driver of our actions. It cannot be the number one reason why we choose to submit in this way and not in that way or why we choose to take one political stance and not another. <clears throat> How do we know this? Well, again, just look right here in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Notice the very first words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject For the Lord's sake to every human institution. So notice he doesn't say be subject for the sake of your fellow citizens to every human institution or be subject for the sake of Christ's reputation or something like that to every human institution. No, be subject for the Lord's sake. In other words, it is obedience to God that is at stake in our submission to every human institution. And then look in verse 14. It says, Or to governors as sent by him. Who is the hymn? It is God, right? God has sent the governors. And he has sent them, as verse 14 says, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So our submission to governors, our submission to human institutions, even though we want our submission to them to reflect well on Jesus Christ, to reach our unbelieving neighbors, what it is ultimately driven by, our primary concern, is that we are then subject to God. And we are following him in every way. And we believe that if we are truly and faithfully following him, that will, in the end, redound to his honor, his good reputation, even among unbelievers. But it's a matter of following him first, and then letting the chips fall where they may, so to speak, instead of being primarily concerned about what unbelievers might have to say, what they might think. And then from there, trying to figure out how to follow God. The way that Peter so often puts the way that we should uh, interact with the opinions of the world is we should always be respectful and gentle. So even in every political stance we take, as we are subject to the authorities, we should be gentle and respectful. And that's the way that we seek the approval of our neighbors, not simply through trying to triangulate our opinions or our positions on the basis of what the unbelieving world thinks. So we're subject to God And in subject being subject to God, we're also subject to human institutions. But this leads to another question, right? Why should we be subject to these human institutions for God's sake? How is it that being subject to a human institution can be likened to subjection to God himself? Again, we know how wicked and how corrupt these human institutions can be. I mean, is it not... A little bit crazy in your mind that the the very empire that Peter is telling these Christians to be subject to is the same empire that crucified Jesus Christ himself? (laughs) He's telling them to be subject to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire that killed Jesus Christ. I mean, if there was ever a case for Christians to overthrow a government... It would be the Roman government, right? The ones who killed our Messiah, who killed our Savior. And yet, even to that government, Peter is telling them, no, be subject to every human institution. And he even list down emperor as supreme, governors as sent by him. So in our context, that means everyone from the president himself to our state governor to our local townships, to our county governors, and all the way down to the dog catcher in the town. Like, we are to be subject, right, to every human institution because all of these have been sent by God. But again, it's very hard to understand how it is that subjection to these human institutions can be likened to subjection from God when they tell us to do so many wicked things sometimes. And... To be clear, Peter does not want us to join with the government in doing things that God forbids, but his attitude is certainly that we should bend over backwards to be submissive to the authorities in whatever way we can be. So, how does this work? I want to make it clear how this works, and I hope that this will both build up your soul to be obedient to your government, but ultimately I think this is going to redound to even seeing the gospel itself more clearly. So, to understand how Peter can say subjection to the government is like subjection to God, notice what Peter says the purpose of government is in verse 14. He says, Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the purpose even of earthly government, right? Punish those who do evil, praise those who do good. Now, does that ring any bells? Does that sound like the purpose of anyone else we know? Well, it should sound a lot like the purpose of God's own government in the world. This is what God does, right, as the judge of all. He punishes those who do evil and he rewards those who do good. Just one clear place to see this is in the the, the story that Jesus tells of the sheep and the goats at the final judgment, right? He talks about the sheep doing righteous acts as they care for the Christian people, and the goats doing wicked acts as they harm the Christian people. And then at the end of of this uh, story that Jesus tells about that final punishment in Matthew 25, 46, he says, These will go away, that is the goats, the wicked into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. right This is just very basic fact about God's judgment on the world. He rewards those who do good, who do righteousness. He punishes those who do evil. And Peter is telling us here this is the same reason why government itself has been instituted on the earth, to condemn those who do evil and to reward those who do good. So what this means is that God has established government in the world to be a reflection of his own authority and power. God has established government in the world to be a reflection of his own authority and power. Obviously not perfect reflections, right? Because no government is able to discern good and evil as well as God is able to discern good and evil. But even if government is very flawed, there is some basic kind of order that they are keeping. Just to give one obvious example, I don't think that there's any government anywhere in the world at any time in human history that did not make murder a crime, right? We all know that murder is evil. Murder is wrong. Can you imagine a society, a people, where murder was not condemned, where it was not punished, and where it was thought just, okay, whoever wants to murder, you can go and murder. That would be a terrible society to live in, right? And so God has given governments on the earth to punish murder, to hold murderers to account, to dissuade people from murdering and to reward those in some way of those people who don't murder, right? And you could go across the board about the laws that government establishes. It condemns evil and it rewards the good. So again, obviously it's not perfect, but it is in general a reflection of God's government of the earth. Now, How do we connect this submission to these laws that the government has to our submission to God? Well, let me just ask you, what is the most satanic thing on earth? What is more destructive on earth than anything else in the world? It's sin, right? Sin is the most destructive force in all the earth. Well, what is sin? 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All right, Do you understand that equation that Scripture is making there between sin and lawlessness? Breaking the law is the same thing as sin. And so if God has given government as this image of his own authority to punish good and to punish evil and reward good, then that means that in the way we resist lawlessness to God, we should also resist lawlessness when it comes to earthly authorities. But 1 John 3-4 doesn't stand alone in showing just how terrible lawlessness is. Consider the famous verses in Matthew seven twenty one 21-23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? What is the offense against God that we are to avoid? The offense of lawlessness, disobedience. Right? It is breaking God's law that is the essence of the rebellious heart that is the essence of sin. Ephesians five, six, all those who don't know the Lord are called sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience. Or even consider a title for the Antichrist Himself, okay? In Second Thessalonians two verse three. Paul is writing about the Antichrist. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Beloved, do you see how serious an issue it is that we obey God's law? If we obey God's law, we are proving our faith genuine. If we are lawless, if we disobey God's law, We are proving ourselves to be children of the devil, to be opposed to God in every way. This is how serious God takes obedience obedience to his law. So, in other words, God wants us to obey the earthly authorities, not because they're perfect, but because in whatever small capacity they do good. In whatever small capacity, the laws of the earthly authorities mirror the authorities of God. When we submit to them, we are submitting to this moral framework that God has given to the world where lawlessness is condemned and righteousness is rewarded. I found that this quote from Augustine was very helpful in kind of wrapping my, my mind and heart around this Reality. Augustine says, governments are a necessary evil, not because every government is necessarily evil, but by the fact that government itself is made necessary by the fact of evil, and that even though governments may be oppressive and exploitative and corrupt, even the worst government is still better than no government. Okay, even the worst government is still better than no government. We can see this playing out. On the earth today, I think. I think one of the worst governments in the world is probably the government of China. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. I pray almost weekly that God would tear down the Chinese Communist Party for its many crimes against humanity, for its oppression of the people of God. And yet, even as I pray that, I do not pray that the Chinese Communist Party would fall in such a way that there is just no longer government in China. Because even anarchy would be worse than the Chinese Communist Party being in power in China. You can see this because you look at the place in the world that's probably closest to anarchy right now, which I would say is sub-Saharan Africa, right, where the central governments of those nations are just not powerful enough to police their own borders. Or you can look at Haiti right now, where there are gangs in Haiti that are more powerful than the central government itself. That The gangs have more weapons, more policing power than the army of the nation of Haiti. And people are suffering in immeasurable ways. And so I would rather have a corrupt government, a Chinese Communist Party kind of government, than to have no government at all. And hopefully that can also put in perspective for us how we should give thanks to God for our own government, right? Now, I know our government is messed up in all kinds of ways. And yes, I pray for our government to change in numerous ways. And yet we as Christians must never let a complaining or criticism become the number one emphasis of our words about our government especially. Just considering the freedoms that it does give us, the security that it does give us. We should be so thankful to God that we have a strong central government, that we have strong policing forces that does withhold so much anarchy that would be otherwise unleashed. You see, Christian politics on their most basic level must be a politics that essentially reflects what Peter says here, punish those who do evil, praise those who do good. That's what our most basic concern is. Now, can we get engaged in, you know, things like uh, tax policy or other, you know, more obscure bills that are being passed and signed? You know, sure, if, if you're interested in those things, pursue those things by all means. And Some of those things may matter a good deal. But most fundamentally, what we should want is we should just want a government that prosecutes the wicked and protects the innocent, right? rewards the good. And if we have that, we should rejoice for the good that God has given us. And we should recognize that in whatever measure we have a government like that, we have a duty as Christians to bend over backwards to submit to that government. Because in that, we are displaying our own obedience To God. When we disobey the government, when we disobey this institution, this organ that God has put in place on the earth to punish evil and to reward the good, what we're really doing is we're just showing the world that we don't think evil should be punished and good should be rewarded. We're showing that we want to make up our own moral system, our own moral framework, and in that way we are denying the gospel of God and we are not making clear God's goodness in god's righteousness we in our obedience to the government can put to shame the world that so often wants to find ways of skirting around the government's authority right by squeezing out of taxes in some measure or finding loopholes in some other measure or asking the question well who's going to know if i do this or do that when we can raise our integrity to the level of saying no we obey because we obey god well, then we are able to have a testimony of God's righteousness to the world and of God's own moral government to which all mankind must give an account. And so we must be subject to the authorities. But there's one more level of irony that Peter builds in here. Notice that we as Christians are not to be obedient to the authorities, are not to be subject to the authorities from a spirit of slavery or of fear, right? So notice Peter doesn't even hear command, obey the authorities because otherwise you're going to go to jail, right? Or otherwise uh, the emperor is going to have you arrested and thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions or something like that, even though that was happening in those days. Peter's exhortation to be obedient to the authorities is not dependent upon some punishment or penalty coming their way, but rather his exhortation to obey is from a spirit of freedom. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Live as people who are free. Now, does that not just contradict what Peter just said, right? Be in subject to every human institution. But then he says, live as people who are free. (laughs) Well, how does that work? Like, if we're free, doesn't that mean we're not subject to these authorities? Well, this is where we really have to understand gospel logic. We have to understand gospel logic. And so in looking now at verse 16, I want to leave us with some really clear some really fundamental gospel truth. When we live as people who are free, that does not mean we are free to throw off every law, every regulation, every rule. It means we are actually free to obey. Now, I know this is confusing, so let's break this down a little bit. When we trust in Jesus, are we saved by perfectly obeying the law, or are we saved by grace? We're saved by grace, right? We're not saved by perfectly obeying the law. We do not perfectly obey the law. That's why we need salvation, right? So we are saved by grace, apart from any works of the law. We could not keep the law, and so we are saved by grace. Well, does that mean that since we are saved by grace, We can now simply get away with anything, right? I mean, if we didn't have to be good in order to be saved, then now that God's grace has been shown to us, then certainly now we have even less reason to be good than we had before, right? Because we haven't received judgment according to our works. Well, no, it doesn't mean that, right? We can't just now get away with anything. God's grace is not a license for disobedience. And yet, we have to be very careful with how we answer here. Technically, under grace, it is true that we can get away with anything. Under grace, we can get away with anything, right? That is what is so amazing about grace. That's what makes it so unbelievable, is that our salvation is not dependent upon our works whatsoever, right? So even when I trust in Jesus, when I repent of my sins, and when I turn to him, what if I sin the next day? Am I then condemned again and I have to be saved again? No. God's mercy is covering me. What if I sin the next day and the next day? What if I sin till the day I die? Guess what? I am going to sin till the day I die. Does that mean I'm no longer forgiven? No. I am under grace. I am not under the law. Technically, by grace, I can get away with anything. I could go kill a man tomorrow, and theoretically at least, I could get away with it. That sin of murder could be cast on the cross of Jesus Christ, and I would be saved by the merit of Christ's perfection and substitution alone. I can get away with sin under grace. But, beloved, here's the other amazing thing about grace. When you have truly understood grace, why would you want to sin against such a God? I mean, Yes, you have license to do anything. God's grace is so overflowing that you could get away with anything. But when you have truly understood the wonder of grace, it's like sin loses all of its flavor. It loses all of its interest. Why? Why would you want to offend a God who loves you so, who is so merciful, who would come to you in your sin, in your filth? And forgive you at the cost of his own life, at the cost of his own son. When you see the wonder of that gospel, it should make you just shut your mouth and say, Lord, may I never sin against you again. So you see, we are free to do anything we want. And yet, no longer do we want to just go out and do anything because we have been captivated by grace. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.14 says the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Beloved, the love of Christ controls us because we've realized this amazing good news that Jesus came and died for us. It is not the law of God that controls us. It's not the rules that God has given that controls us. The love of Christ. We love him so much because he first loved us. Because what he did for us. So that now our actions, our whole lives are constrained by this love. To walk in the way that God wants us to walk. Not out of obligation. Not out of legal demand. But out of love. Romans 8 2 through 4 communicates this very same message. It says, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Notice those words, set you free. The same word that Peter uses, freedom, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, Peter, or sorry, Paul in Romans is saying that we walk according to the law Not because we have to keep the law, but because we walk in the Spirit. Because we are constrained by love. Because we are amazed at this God who would not hold the law against us, but would set us free in Jesus Christ. So we don't walk according to the law. When we look at the law of the Old Testament, or even when we look at the law of earthly governments, our mindset, our question is not, Okay, how much can I get away with, right? How can I possibly stretch this to the breaking point and do all that I want to do, but still technically keep the law, right? That is the legal mentality. That is the mentality that is not serving the Lord or serving institutions from the heart, but rather serving it because you're trying to keep some external written code. But that is not how we as Christians live, because we love God from the heart because of what Jesus has done. And so instead of just looking to the law and saying, okay, what can I get away with? What's technically correct and technically not correct? We ask the question, Lord, how can I love you with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength? And that is going to look like an even more narrow path than the path that the law itself requires because love is stronger than law. Love is stronger than law. And so this is how Peter can make this seemingly contradictory statement in verse 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So do you understand how when we know our freedom in Jesus Christ... It's impossible for us to use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. It's impossible for us to say, haha, now I can get away with anything. I'm going to go and live how I want. If that's what you say, you have not understood the grace of God. You have not understood the gospel. But when you understand the grace of God, when you understand the gospel, you understand you are free, that you don't have to keep any law, that you can get away with anything. But that wonder in itself is what constrains your heart to obey God in every last way because you're amazed that he would love you so, so much. And so Peter tells us to live as people who are free. And when we are free in that way, we won't try to get away with what we can get away with. Rather, we will be subject to God and we'll be subject for God's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution that he has sent and so, beloved, I hope in that way it's clear how we as Christians and why we as Christians must obey the earthly authorities. Because in our wholehearted obedience to the earthly authorities, it is an image of our obedience to God Himself in the gospel. Peter summarizes these verses, these commands that He's just made in verse 17 Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the emperor. Beloved, let us strive to submit to the earthly authorities in every way, living in the context of an unbelieving world with such closeness, with such transparency, that the unbelieving world, in our obedience to the authorities, is ultimately called to give glory to God, who would set us free from the heart, from sin and death, and would liberate us to live for a God who loves us, and whom we now love in return. Would you join me in prayer for this heart among us, for a heart of repentance toward those wrongs that we have done, and that his name would go out among the nations. Father, I thank you for your commands because they are good. And Lord, we confess that we do not always want to be subject To the earthly institutions, God, we often do want to grumble and complain about the authorities that you have put in place. And yet, God, I pray that you would help us to have a right heart toward them, Lord, as you command us to have here, that we would obey them as if we are obeying you, that we would obey them for your sake and as ones whom you have sent. And so, Lord, forgive us for our disobedience to the authorities, Forgive us for ways that we try to cut corners. And I pray, God, that you truly would make us obedient to the heart, to you above all else, and then underneath you to the authorities that you have sent. God, as we look in a broader way to our needs as your church, to the needs of this city around us and to the needs of the world, I pray that you would now hear our prayers of confession and petition.